0: Uh, what lengths would you be willing to go to in order to be with someone that you love? Uh, it might be with a friend or to be with a family member. Well, during this season of COVID, you know, and um, self-isolation, maybe you've been someone who's driven past a friend's house. Um, you know, maybe you've honked your horn to have a bit of a chat through the window with someone. Um, I've got a friend who uh, his uh, nephew was actually born during social isolation, so he went to his sister's house and got to meet his nephew through the window. Uh, what lengths would you go to in order to be able to, you know, be with someone that you love? Well, I heard a story a while ago about an Australian man who went to extraordinary lengths uh, to be able to get to his daughter's birthday. Uh, It's a true story. You can Google it later if you want. Uh, The story goes that this man called Reg uh, went to England for a while to work and to train for the Olympic Games as a javelin thrower. Uh, He was planning on uh, getting back to Australia, though, for his daughter's birthday. But you see, while he was over there in England, his wallet got stolen and had all his money in it. And as the date drew nearer for his daughter's birthday, this man uh, went to book himself a plane ticket, but realized he didn't have anywhere near enough money. Plane tickets were insanely expensive, and he just couldn't afford it. I mean, this was in the 60s. Do you know how expensive an overseas flight was in the 60s? Well, m- me either. Uh, but I googled it, uh, and the guy in the story as well said it was really expensive. I mean, plane tickets started about four grand upwards to be traveling around then. He couldn't afford it. So he hatched a plan with his English roommate to try to get back. See, they discovered that the biggest box that you could freight over from England to Perth was just big enough for Reg to fit inside of. So they uh, they built a box with some straps inside of it to hold him in and uh, put a mechanism on the inside as well that let him get out from the inside. He disguised the box to make it look like one that was being sent to a paint company And then he got his friend to mail him back to Australia from England on an airplane inside of this wooden box with some food and water and some clothing on the inside to see him through. Now, it took three days before that box arrived, but he got back. He got back to Australia. He landed in Perth and he got away with it. That is... Uh, ...until his friends started contacting people in Australia... ...to see if Reg was still alive... ...because Reg had forgot to tell him that he'd made it. Uh, and soon the media court hold the story... ...they flocked to Reg to hear what had happened. Uh, and it's a really outrageous story... ...a really ridiculous scheme... ...but the man made it. He got back in time for his daughter's birthday. But amazing lengths to go to... ...to be with the person that he loves. Well this morning... Uh, we see the peak of the Israelite nation under the kingship of Solomon. This morning we see this great celebration underway at the end of 1 Kings chapter 8. And why? Because just like Reg went through amazing lengths to be with his daughter, God had gone through amazing lengths to be with his people as well. well. Last week, as we looked at Solomon as the wise king, uh, we were left with a question. Will Solomon show true wisdom and seek to live in God's way, in God's world, or will he throw out his relationship with God? Well, this morning, things are looking pretty positive for King Solomon and for the Israelites. The outline today says in point one, a promise keeping God, in point two, a great celebration, and point three, a warning for the king. So point one, a promise keeping God. At the start of our passage this morning, Solomon has just finished a prayer to God after the temple in Jerusalem had been built. Uh, Now, the temple being built in Jerusalem was a really big deal for the Israelites because it signalled something uh, really great throughout the Israelite nation. It signalled that God had remained true to his promises to King David. He was Solomon's father. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said to David through the prophet Nathan... The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, the building of the temple was such a big deal because it saw these promises being fulfilled. God would give David's offspring an eternal kingdom, and David's son would sit on its throne. More than that, his son would be the one who would build a house for the name of the Lord, a temple where God would be with the Israelites, like he was in the wilderness in the tabernacle. It's an incredible promise that the Israelites are seeing come true here in 1 Kings 8. And Solomon, after his prayer, stands and he says, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Um, If you've had much involvement with children, uh, you know the danger of making promises to them. Uh, Why? Because they will never, ever, ever forget. It's a very dangerous game. When I was four years old, my parents were having some difficulty getting me to go to bed. And this went on for a fair few nights before they hatched a master plan to get myself and my brother to finally go to sleep. And it involved a promise. It went something like this. Mum came up to me and said, Jack, and I said, "Uh, Yes. Mother, dearest, uh, she said, "It's time for you to get ready for bed now." And I said, "Oh, well, mother, sweet, sweet mother, it is in fact time for me to make another bow and arrow out of your good coat hangers and some chopsticks." And and she said, "No, Jack, it's bedtime." I said, "Mum, the orcs are about to breach the castle. My hands are tied. I need this." She said, "Jack, if you go to bed, I promise you, you'll be able to see the blanket show." And I went the blanket show. She said, yeah, if you go to sleep, I promise you'll see it. I said, really? She said, yeah, all you need to do is lie down, keep watching for the blanket show, but if you don't keep watching and waiting, you'll miss it. So I filled with excitement, uh, you know, wanting to see this mysterious blanket show, I went to bed and I kept watching, I kept waiting for that blanket show and I fell asleep. Mum's plan worked. But 24 years later, I'm still waiting for the blanket show. When's it going to come true? When's mum's promise going to come true? 24 years. That's a really long time to wait for a promise to come true, isn't it? But in verse 56, Solomon is praising God for a promise that has come true, that God made to the Israelites' ancestors, not even 20 years before Solomon, but generations and generations before him. The reference is to Moses. It's a promise that God made in Deuteronomy 12 of rest for the Israelites in the promised land. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 12 says, But you will cross the Jordan, you will settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Solomon praises God because he has kept his promises. The Israelites are in the promised land, they have rest The king of David is on the throne and God is with them. It's a great time of celebration for the Israelites. But Solomon, being the wise king that he is, realises what could make it end. So he recognises the need for Israel to remain faithful to God just like he has been faithful to them. So Solomon asks God in verses 57-60 to to continue being with the Israelites. He asked God to turn their hearts towards obeying him and not rejecting him. He also asked God to continue to care for and sustain the Israelites as he has been doing. Not only for their benefit, but also so that the nations around them would see this God, see how he cares for Israel. That they would see and know that the Lord is the only God. That there is no other. But Solomon also has words for the Israelites. He says, may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. See, Solomon is saying things are going well now, but will it continue? Solomon wants the Israelites to continue living in worship of God. He says to be committed to him. The alternative, of course, is to turn away from commitment to God, uh, to worshipping idols. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about idols, but for me it's usually an image of a statue or or an animal or something that people are bowing down to and calling their God. But Solomon here has mentioned the word heart quite a few times. And it's because if the Israelites are committed to anything other than God, it means that their hearts are turning away from God. Their hearts are turning to idolatry. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, states that the human heart is like an idle factory. Uh, He says that the human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, uh, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, or make them gods, at the centre of our lives, because we think that they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfilment if we attain them. But here in 1 Kings 8, Solomon wants the Israelites to have their hearts turned towards God, recognising that only he can give these things, not the idols in the world that the other nations are bowing down to and worshipping. It's a matter of the heart. In Deuteronomy 6, the Israelites are told by God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. They are to love God and to walk in obedience to him, not to idols, not to anything else in the world around them, but to God, their creator. So here we see Solomon praising God for being a promise-keeping God who is with his people. And Solomon wants the Israelites to continue in right relationship with him. Because having a promise-keeping God who they are in relationship is cause for great celebration. That's point two this morning. A great celebration. Think about the best parties that you've ever been to or uh, the greatest celebrations. For me, um, one of those that stands out was the wedding day of my brother and my sister-in-law. People came from all over to share in the celebrations. We had family come down from Townsville for it, family from Canberra, uh, and from all corners of South Australia, people came to celebrate the occasion. There was delicious food and drink. There was dancing and singing and speeches. Uh, lots of, you know, the good kind of tears, happy tears. It was an amazing celebration. In verses 62 to 66, we see a similar celebration with people coming from every border of Israel. But this celebration is enormous. All of Israel came together in order to celebrate the temple being built. They came to celebrate the fact that God was with them. They came to show their devotion to God. We're told that Solomon sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So many that they had to set apart the courtyard in front of the temple to be able to do that many sacrifices. And for 14 days, this celebration went on. Now, when you see those numbers, it seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? I mean, 142,000 animals being part of the sacrifice that Solomon and the Israelites make, I mean, that is enormous. Well, making sacrifices in the Old Testament was part of the way God told the Israelites to worship him. And it was an important part of the Israelites' way of life. So here, the amount of sacrifices is meant to show both the extent of the Israelites' gratitude to and devotion to God... But it also serves to show the immense wealth that God had given them. Just as he promised Solomon in chapter 3. See, God is really after their hearts. And for Solomon the Israelites to show their devotion, I mean, this is what it took. They wanted to um, show that they were devoted to God. So they sacrificed 142,000 animals in worship of their God. The festival, the celebrations last for two whole weeks before Solomon sends his people home. We're told in verse 66 that the Israelites blessed the king and then they went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. See, the Israelites are celebrating a promise-keeping God who is with them. It's like the last scene of a happy ending kind of movie before the credits start to roll in. It kind of feels like, oh, this is the end of the story. It's really great. But it's not the end of the story. Actually, we see that in point three today, in chapter nine, where we see a warning for Israel's king. Like at Gibeon in 1 Kings chapter three, God appears again to Solomon, but this time with a little bit more to say. It starts off really well. God says to Solomon, I've heard the prayer and plea you made before me, I've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eye my eyes and my heart will always be there. See God is saying to Solomon, I am committed to you. He is committed to his people. But what God says next to Solomon is that the relationship isn't a one way street. See, Solomon realised that idolatry and sin would turn Israel away from obedience to God in chapter 8, verse 61. But in chapter 9, God says to Solomon, What about you? Will you be committed to me as Israel's king? Will you lead your people in their relationship with me? He says to Solomon in verse 4, As for you, if you walk before me faithfully, with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Just as I promised David your father when I said, You shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God will remain committed to Solomon. But... In verse 6, we hear the warning, not just to Solomon, but to all of Israel's kings after him. If they don't continue in commitment to God in obedience to him, then the Israelites will lose the land that God has given them. The temple will be destroyed. And instead of the nations looking at Israel and seeing how God has cared for them, they will look at Israel and know that they are facing God's judgment for turning away from him for worshipping false gods, for worshipping idols. It's a big warning, and it shows us what God wants from Israel's king to lead his people in relationship to him by himself being faithful and committed to God. He doesn't want Solomon to just be half committed. He wants him to be all in. So, In some sense, we're left with the same question as we were last week. Things are looking really good for the Israelites and for Solomon, but will it continue? Will Solomon pursue relationship with God, or will he throw away his relationship with God and worship the idols of the nations around him? Well, I mentioned last week that the books of 1 and 2 Kings were written for the Israelites while they were in a foreign land. This is because they were facing God's judgment. And the reason they were there and facing God's judgment was because Solomon, the kings after him, and the Israelite people ultimately failed to do what God had asked. They fell into idolatry. They chose to reject God in place of idols, and they faced the consequences for it. It's a massive repeat of another part of the Bible that we see. A massive repeat of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve enjoying God's creation, living in obedience to his command after God has just created the world. We're told that God even visited them in the garden. God's people were in God's place with God. It's a beautiful image. But remember what happens? Instead of choosing obedience to God, they choose instead to listen to the voice of the serpent who questions God's goodness Mm who says to them that they don't need God, and they listen. For the Israelites as well, and for Solomon, we just see the same thing on repeat. And the Israelites who were reading these verses that we've just read today, they would recognise their failure. Just as Adam and Eve had failed, just as the kings of Israel failed, just as they had failed, They would have been left wondering, well, how can we be with a faithful God if we can't be faithful in return? I mean, it's, it's easy for us, isn't it, in some sense, to stand at the distance and look at the Israelites and just to think, like, man, they're stupid. You know, can you believe how they stuffed up so badly? But we need to recognize that for us to say that is to actually be saying that into a mirror. Because the same things that the Israelites are ultimately guilty of is the same thing we're guilty of too. Rejecting God by saying no to his rule over our lives. By choosing to make things like security, wealth, relationships, career, family, our idols. Making those our gods and choosing to live in worship of those things rather than the God who created the entire universe. The God who loves us and the God who wants a relationship with us. But if the Israelites couldn't get it right, if we can't get it right, who can? Who can restore this relationship with God so that we can be with him in his promised kingdom? The answer, of course, is Jesus. Jesus, who we are told in Matthew 1, is from the line of David and is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the temple in 1 Kings 8 is like a big arrow, Pointing to Jesus, God with us, who we are told in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the story at the beginning was a pretty incredible incredible one, wasn't it? Of of Reg uh, being inside of that little wooden box for three days, with his hands strapped to either side of him so that he could fly across the world to be with his daughter on her birthday. But what we see in Jesus is God made man who came down into a world that rejected who he was as our God, who he is as our God, who kept hating him. A world that was offensive in his sight. But he allowed himself to be lifted up on a wooden cross, with his hands held out to either side, nails driven through his flesh to die a horrible death, so that the price we should have paid was paid in our stead. The lengths that Jesus was willing to go to so that we could be with him was to face death in our place, to face the full judgment and anger of God so that we wouldn't have to. Now imagine if Reg had gotten out of that box, imagine if he'd gone home, seen his daughter, opened the door with his arms held out wide, and she just completely ignored him. Well when we ignore Jesus, that's exactly what we're doing to God. When we ignore Jesus, we're saying to God, we don't care that he came into the world to die for us, that we don't need him, that we've got this sorted out on our own. But the thing that the Israelites found out time and time and time again is that they can't do it on their own. They need to look for a king who can be obedient for them. Who can pay the price of sin that we all deserve to pay. That's what we really need. And that is found in God's promised king, Jesus When Jesus began his ministry here on earth, he had a message for everyone to hear. In Mark 1 verse 15, Jesus' very first words in that book are, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus wants us to recognise that we get living in God's world wrong. That we do sin, that we do reject him. And the way he calls us to respond isn't by working off a debt or by never getting things wrong again because we will. But it's to turn away from the way we're currently living, of rejecting him. It's to say sorry to God and to put our trust in Jesus who's paid that price for our sin. To put our trust in the king who leads us to relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet done that but would like to hear about what that looks like some more, um, please come and talk to myself or talk to staff or a friend that you came with. Or if you're uh, online, um, send us an email. See, The question of what place Jesus has in your life is the most important question you will ever ask. So please reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. For all of us this morning, though, let's consider what it looks like for us to be committed to God and to pursue relationship with Him and not the world. What are the things that get in the way of your relationship with God? What are the idols you might be worshipping instead of Him? Well, Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that I mentioned, gives some really helpful advice about how to spot those idols. He says, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home or a relationship with a particular person? All of these things, while inherently good, are examples of those modern day idols that we choose to bow down to and serve. They are the things that we say will give us fulfilment, security, love, comfort, joy. That they're the things that deserve our energy, our strength, our lives. And we all have those kinds of idols. No matter how long we've been a Christian. So you remember what Keller said about our hearts being idol factories? But what do we do when we do spot these idols? Well, we're reminded by Keller and Counterfeit Gods that even if we do find an idol in our lives and do get rid of it, another idol could just as easily sneak in and grab its place. See what really needs to fill the place of that idol-shaped hole. Is Jesus becoming more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol? And this will take time and it's hard. It's why we need to remember time and time again that it isn't our ability to be obedient to God that means we can be with him. It isn't our ability to be obedient to God that means we can be with him. Jesus has done that for us. When God looks at us, he sees the obedient king that we trust in. That's why Keller says that rejoicing and repentance go together. See, Sin and guilt for sin must lead to repentance, to saying sorry to God. But we need to also remember that we can rejoice in Jesus' amazing love for us and what is done for us on that cross. And the incredible lengths he went to so that we can be forgiven. The incredible length he went to so that we can be with him. And remember, the other thing God has given to us to help us in this is the Holy Spirit. See, we're not alone as we struggle in this. God is at work in and amongst us by the Holy Spirit, helping us to live for him, shaping us to be more and more like Jesus. Remember what we heard in Ephesians 2.19 a few months ago? And in him, meaning Jesus, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. He is with us. We have a promise-keeping God who's gone to the greatest lengths ever known so that we can be with Him in relationship into eternity, in His promised kingdom. He is with us even now, interceding for us, helping us to live for God. How will you live in response to Him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are as our loving God. Thank you for the great lengths you went to to make it possible for us to be in a relationship with you. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place. We pray that you'd help us to spot the idols in our lives that we follow where we should be following you. And that you'd help us to turn away from those things and live in worship of you, our Creator, our loving God. Amen.